morning. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you for being an awesome God, a great God, a God who's worthy of all praise, glory, and honor, God. When we just thankful just for the opportunity to say we can know something about you, God, for saying we have experienced some of your love, some of your mercy, Father God, that we can lift up our voices, God, and, and, and sing praises to you, God, that we're conscious of the fact that you love us, God, and you've shown your love and demonstrated your love through us, Father God, and all the grace and that you have given us. Help us, Father God, to never to forget your love. Help us to never to forget you, God, and to always focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Revelations chapter 4, we're going to pick up continually talking about what we've been talking about for the longest, and that's us made in the image of God. But we're going to begin to transition a little bit to try to understand us as we are now a little better. Because if we, some of the scriptures we looked at about the glory of being made like Christ, about the glory that God put upon us at creation, Ecclesiastes talking about how God made man upright, and that how we were formed in the nature and the character that God himself possessed. But as we said before, when we look around the world, when we look within ourselves, it don't seem so glorious. We don't seem to be people crowned with glory and majesty like the scriptures say. So how is it that we get from a point of being crafted and shaped for unhindered personal relationship with God where we live lived as one with God and one with man and woman together to the place where death, confusion, chaos, killing is our common state of existence. That when you look at archaeology, everywhere they find man, they find death and disease. They ain't found no peaceful civilization yet. It all ends in death and destruction. So how do we go from glory to the chaos that we're in now is what we're looking at. But to slow this transition up a little bit, just talk a little more about how we're made and, and what it is that we exist for. And, and the idea I want to put in your mind going forward is the understanding of perversion. That to truly understand who we are, the concept of pervert or being perverted is something that we're going to wrestle with. And the reason I bring that up is our general understanding here in America, in normal English language, when we think of pervert, we think of somebody who peeped through windows, messed with little children, those type of things. Uncle Chester, that, that's the pervert. But the word literally means to alter or to change. That's, that's all the word literally means, is to alter or to change. And the reason we ascribe that word to those type of people is, is there's a proper relationship between an adult and a child that's supposed to take place want a loving care and protection, teaching and guidance. But these people have changed the trust of that relationship and mutilated the, the trust that goes on with a child that creates all type of chaos, all type of hurt, all type of vain. 
anger and pain. That's why we call them perverts because they have altered their position as a loving, guiding teacher and changed it into something that is chaotic, that brings hurt, that brings trauma that some people never recover from. And the idea I want to put forth is to understand that we are in that same state. When we're born as we are as natural people, we are perverts. And sin in and of itself is only a perversion. And it's going to be my task for the next couple of weeks to try to demonstrate to you that sin, as we know it, as we see it, is a perversion of the good thing that God has created. That that's the best way to understand all sin. That it's a corruption, a perversion of what God made and what God has created. But as we get in that, look at Revelation chapter 4. Talk a little bit more about purpose and who we are as human beings. It said, this is a scene where John gets a vision of heaven. He gets to see the very throne of God. And we're picking up in the middle of it in verse 9. It says, and when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Beautiful scene. John looking into the very presence of God. And you got these four and twenty elders bowing down before God, worshiping him continuously, continuously. They're giving worship to God. But the point I want to pull out is the worship that they gave to him. They said, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? Because thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So what the four and twenty elders are praising God is for his created power. So it's something about God as creator that makes him worthy of worship. But understanding this creation, it says you have created all things for thy pleasure. Uh, some of you have the new translations that say according to your will, they are and were created. So what they're saying is that everything that exists is according to or for the pleasure or purposes of God. That's everything that has been created. So that would include us. So if we were to understand ourselves, we were created after the image of God. We were made to reflect him, but only, but not only are we created after his image, but we were created for his purposes. So us being who we are, are people who are doing the will and purposes of God. That's your purpose as a human being. And one of the amazing things is we live in a day and age where we have amped what I would say secular or worldly achievement to the point of defining us. That we judge ourselves based on, I said before, where we live, what we drive, how much money we got, what job we work. And that's where we find status from. And that's why you have people willing to destroy their families, drive their houses into all type of crazy debt to maintain an appearance because having these things is being somebody. That's how we judge ourselves. And even to the point where now in this social world and, and, and all the social media and all that stuff, that just made it out of control. It's crazy now. And we elevated ourselves to the point of our well-being and our doing is based on the response of people. And this new social media has trained us to think that way. Because you can't put a scripture up without checking every five minutes to see who liked it. 
Because your scripture ain't no good if ain't enough people say they like it or they retweet it or they quote it. You ain't did nothing. And that has trained our mind to look for the acceptance and the approval for people to the umpteenth degree. Now, we've already been corrupted, so we wanted that anyway. But the way our world has been created now to where we stuck with this brick of confusion and distraction that it has increased that. And that's why the increase of hurt, pain, and loneliness, anxiety, depression continues to go up. Because we become people who judge ourselves based off the response of people who we don't even know. It's always bad enough when you had your, just your family and your cousins and them that you compared yourself to. When your mama said, look, you should, you should be more like your cousin. She been to college, she did this, that, and that, and you really, you barely made it, I don't know what you're doing. That was bad enough. Now you got your cousin, 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 and folk that they knew cousins, and all them hundred thousand folk who you never met, but you called them your friends, and now they get to put their insight in on your life. And you get to look at all their pictures, all their fun, and everything that they got going on, all the smiles on their faces, and everything about them, and compare yourself to this make-believe thing that you look on a computer and say, I'm not worthy. That my life ain't that great. I ain't did nothing. Because my auntie, cousin, sister, friend just bought a Mercedes. And I still got duct tape holding my glove compartment up. (laughs) What am I doing with my life? I'm 30 years old. I ain't bought no house yet. I ain't been married. Everything is going down the drain. Look at them. They so happy. And then it messed our head up. But what we need to understand is our purpose, our significance is not found in anything we can do on this planet. It's in our relation to who we know in the fact that we were crafted after the image of God. And if we were to zone in and want to pick one thing that we need to do, we need to please him. We need to do his will because all things were created for his pleasure or according to his will. That's why we exist. So if you want to know your purpose in life, all you need to do is know God and do what he tell you to do. You live in purpose. Ain't no deep mystery you got to figure out. You don't got to go on no philosophical retreat, buy no crystals, and all that other type of foolishness that had creeped into the church. You ain't got to get no cards to be flipped over, nobody rubbing on your hand, talking about reading in. You don't need any of that stuff. You pursue God, seek God, and do whatever he tell you. Because you exist for his will and for his purposes. Go, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 33. Say, oh, the depth, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past fan- finding out. For who have known the mind of the Lord or who have been his counselor or who have first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of whom, uh, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is talking about our great God and Paul is breaking it down because 
leading up into this point, he just talked about some hard stuff about the punishment given to Israel for their rebellion and the electing of the Gentiles for to be inherited in the kingdom of God. And it goes into some stuff that break up churches and people have a hard time figuring it out. But Paul ended with praise and exhortation because he said, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches of God. God got this great power that we cannot get to the end of it. His wisdom is so vast that we can never completely understand it. How amazing is it? Why, Paul? Because for him, through him, and to him are all things. So everything exists for God. Everything exists through God. And everything finds its end in God. That's what it means to, to him. So all of history is flowing through a point, And God is the end of it. That's what he means by I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I started this thing off and I'm the finisher of it. Everything finds its purpose in being in me. So the goal of history is to reach a point. But God is that point. And if it exists for all of creation, for him, through him, and to him, that also applies to me. I exist for God. That's the reason that I am him, that I am here, is for him. So we need to get our minds focused on this point and not allow ourselves to be distracted in pursuit of things that does not matter. We exist for him. Our purpose is found in him, in the end of our existence. The goal, the point of all of our being is found in God himself. That's where we're headed, to be with him, to be reunited with him, to stand before him, to be connected to him. That's why you exist. And so if that's where we're going and God is here with us now, that should be our pursuit now that we can experience heaven on earth because heaven is being in the presence of God. And that we can experience true life and fulfillment and meaning now because our purpose is to exist for him. That's why Paul can say crazy stuff like, no matter whether you eat or drink and do all to the glory of God. Because that's why we exist. That is our purpose. This is the purpose and meaning of man. Just look at one more. Just drive this point home. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. Verse 7. This is Isaiah talking about part of the restoration after the judgment of the Lord. Let's start from the first verse 1 just to get you the whole picture. It said, but now thus said Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, and Ethiopia, and Savior for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I... Will I give men for thee and people for thy life? Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. 
even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. This is God's promise of restoration to the children of Israel. And their restoration is our salvation. Because the picture of restoration is the picture of regeneration, of being born again. And we have been brought into this branch of Israel. So as this call go forth to restore the children of Israel to their place, it's a call to us to be restored to God. Because Colossians say he took the two, the Israelites and the non-Israelites, and he made them one. So as he pour forth this redemption to them, we get the benefits of it. And now we are the people called by his name. He has placed his name upon us and crowned us with the glory of being his children. So the promises of him being with us, leading us, guiding us, and protecting us apply to us because we are called by his name. But look what it say about the people called by his name. Say, everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for what? My glory. That's the reason I formed him. So this people who are called by my name, I formed them, I created them, I crafted them for my glory. That's why they exist. So God has put destiny, his purposes, his reputation, and bound it up in you. That's a deep thing to think about. Ephesians 1 talks about us having inheritance in God, but it says in his inheritance in us. So Paul praying, said, may the eyes of their understanding be open to see your inheritance in them and their inheritance in you. So we have an inheritance in God, but God has an inheritance in us. He has crowned us with something. And the way that God has set the story up is you being formed, crafted, and made in the image of God brings glory to him. Now just think about this. God is very serious about his glory. To the point where there was a dude who spoke in the book of Acts. Hear it. And the people began to praise him and call him a God. The apostles tried to rebuke him and he wasn't hearing him. And he was struck down. Because he gave not glory to God. That's deep. Nebuchadnezzar was driven to the point of insanity. Because God warned him and warned him and warned him and told him. You need to bow down. But because he would not give glory to God. God made him mad and crazy. Because God don't play about his glory. And he says glory he would not share with another. But also he shows us that God, the most high God, will be glorified in the sons of men. And that gives me hope. How why did that give you hope? Because God then set this thing up where he going to get glory out of me. And it's his job to get his own glory. Get your glory, God. And he going to get it. But him getting glory is me being formed or crafted after his image. So that means as long as I hold and stay steadfast and allow God to mold me and shape me, I'm going to be what he called me to be. I'm going to fulfill purpose on this planet. I'm going to accomplish all that God has crafted me for because his glory is bound up in me. That's how Jesus wanted to show out. Was take the lowliest of the low and accomplish his great task of honoring God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So I get excited when I think about the fact of who I am. Not worth much. Don't come from much. Not crowned with much. In the eyes of this world, I'm very insignificant. 
that means God got a little bit more he can get from me. <laughs> that means when I do something, it's going to be a little bit greater. You understanding what I'm saying? And, and, and God has been, been driving this in my mind. I think back to when I was in all the way back elementary school. And, and, and this come to my mind every now, every couple of years or so. It's a hard thing for my mama to think about. <laughs> that was a rough time in her life. <laughs> Getting called, <laughs> having to take off work because they wouldn't let me come back on their school unless somebody brought me. It was bad. Getting kicked off the bus. <laughs> it was, it was a rough time. We just put leave it at that. But I had this one principle and God bring the thing up to me every couple of years or so. And she spoke to my mother about me. Because of the rough time that she had experience with me, she say, by the time he reached 19, he's either going to be dead or in jail. That was her prophecy concerning me. <laughs> That's all she could see. By the time he reached 19, he's either going to be dead or in jail. Because the people who come from where he come from, they act how he act, that's what they end up being. She could see nothing else. And it just, I ain't going to even tell no story. It made me feel a little good. That a couple years later, I forgot all about this lady. And I ended up going to a church event. I can't even remember what I was going there for. And she was sitting up in there. By this time, Jesus that got a hold of me and started shaping me and changing me and transforming me. So, I go and sit right next to her. Hey, man, Joy, you remember me? <laughs> and she know my whole name. <laughs> After all them years, she still remembers me. And her face lit up to see that I won dead. I won in jail. And another amazing thing happened. It's like, God, be, be, be giving me a little thing. I guess I need the encouragement or something. I'm working. I work at a juvenile detention center, prison, whatever you want to call it. And I was helping with this training. And some folks from another campus came out to the training. There was this young guy in there, a little bit younger than me, almost the same age as me. And we just sit down and talking on, on the break. And he's like, man, where you from? Yeah, I'm from Montgomery, man. I grew up on the west side. Oh, you from Montgomery? Yeah, me too, man. So, so, hey, you went to, uh, what school you went to? Man, junior high, I went to Cloverdale, went to Carver Elementary. I went to Self Johnson. You went to Self Johnson? Hey, yeah, I went to Self Johnson. Man, you know I'm Miss Jordan. Hey, yeah, that was my principal. He said, man, that was my mama. <laughs> I like, oh, man. Man, I'm pretty sure your mama hated me, boy. And he made the statement. Well, I probably gave her worse time than what you said. <laughs> but the thing that stuck out to me is that the man who was supposed to have been dead and in jail was training and teaching her son how to do his job. So the lady who was supposed to have been teaching me gave up on me and through the grace of God, I got to a place where I could teach her son. Who I found out was just as bad as I was. <laughs> but the deal is, is that God seems to enjoy the low, 
the downcast, the broken, the one who have been hurt, the one that people can look at and see no good in. God seems to get a little glory and he seems to be happy about those who ain't supposed to make it. Why? And it ain't because like the church folk tell us. He looked in me and he saw my destiny. I ain't got no destiny. It's because God is a God concerned with his own glory. And he look at himself and he see what he can do and he wanted to be known what he can do. And so he can take you the person who ain't supposed to be anything, the person who life has destroyed and supposed to be beat down, cannot overcome, forward trauma, cannot get out the bed, cannot ever do anything normal again because of what you've been through. And God can take you and make you into something that brings praise, bring glory, and bring honor to his name. And more than he can, he will. Because he put his glory on you. That's why Jesus in John 17 said, glorify them with the same glory I had with you from the beginning. This is the prayer of Jesus. He praying for that. This is what he wants for you. This is what he's longing for, to see you walking in the glory of God. And the amazing thing is you ain't got to wait some 10, 20, 30 years until you're dead and your body in the coffin and can't nobody see it. That you can walk in glory now. That people can look at you and you can be open about your story and you can share your pain, you can share your hurt, and it ain't be hurting to you. It's a testimony. It's something that that makes you excited to see I ain't supposed to be here, but I am. I ain't supposed to be walking in victory, but I am. Ain't nothing about me tell you that I'm supposed to be living right. I've been lying since I've been talking. And now God used me to tell the truth. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And we need to know that this is our purpose, but it ain't built on us. It's a built on God. God going to get his own glory. You understand what I'm saying? Look, let's look at one more. Proverbs, verse six, chapter 16. Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 4. This is a hard verse. It says, The Lord have made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's a tough verse. So the Lord have made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And the basic point of it, is that everything that is, everything that exists, God made it or crafted it for his purposes. God made all things for himself. So God has the right to take and utilize everything that exists for his own self. So if God can take wickedness and use it to accomplish his means, why can't he do it with me? You understanding what I'm saying? God saved the world through men being haters. Now, what do you mean by that? Jesus came. He lived. He died. He loved people. He healed people. He walked upright. He did only the things that God told him to do. And what response did he get? People cursing him, calling him devils, trying to throw him off a cliff. Berating and ridiculing his parents and his upbringing. This is what he got for it. But their hatred was utilized by God to be the means of Christ laying down him life for your salvation. 
So God took the wickedness of men to accomplish his task. And that task is the salvation of the whole world. Now, if he can get his job done through folks who don't want to be doing his job, to people who are not even conscious of the fact that God is doing a job, why can't he do it through me? You, you, you're getting where my, where my mind going at. Why can't he do it through me? The person who, who who's trying, the person who's praying and, and reading my word, the person who's getting up early morning on a Saturday, Sunday morning to listen to a little bit of country boy talk to them about Jesus. Why can't he do it through me? If I'm willing to just, just, just cry out to him, if I'm going after him, I'm warning him and I'm desiring, what would make me believe that he won't do the same thing with me? If he can use a Judas to bring salvation. If he can use crucifixion to save the world. If he can use the hatred and jealousy of evil religious leaders. Why can't he use the love and devotion and the longing of a liberty boy who don't want to do nothing but know him better. Who can't do right but want to. Everything that exists exists for him. That includes you. But if we be honest with ourselves, we're not conscious of that. We don't see ourselves and our lives as being interconnected with the glory of God. Matter of fact, if we be honest with ourselves, most of the time we don't even think about God when we think about ourselves. We just think about how bad ourselves is. That's just how we go. Or you go to the other extreme and you think about how great you are without God. But God hardly ever comes into the picture. Why is that? Why is it a couple months ago, however many months it been, so from now until the next 10 years, I'm going to be saying a couple months ago, referring back to some lesson that we had. <laughs> we gave a lesson when we were talking about the nature and characteristics of God and our response to God. And one of them we said is we can't forget God. And we went through the scriptures and looking at the multiple times that the Bible gave warning about us not forgetting God, about us remembering him. Like, why do you have to say that? Like, why do the greatest being ever to be have to tell people, remember me? Like, that, that's deep. I'm talking about if folks still to the day can tell you what type of shoes every Presley had on when he did a concert in 19 whatever, whatever. These old men that can quote to you baseball stats from all the way from the 1950s. All the way down to the particles of dust that were collected on the ball <laughs> when the third baseman scooped it up. And even now, just recently, we had our big moment. And everybody can remember 9-11. And you have people telling you their story. Well, I was at the hospital with my mama. And we turned the TV on. <laughs> Actually, that's true. I was at the hospital. <laughs> Think about it. But we remember this stuff. And this is not that great of an event in comparison to who God is. We can remember that, but he had to remind us, don't forget God. When you get to your place, remember him. Don't grow up and think that you accomplished this on your own. Remember this. Set up these stones for a testimony and a remembrance. He had to do all these things to get us. Even now in the New Testament, he gave us some bread and some juice and said, do this in remembrance of me. We always got to be reminded to remember him. And he the greatest one in the world. Why is that? 
What is that about us that puts us in a position where we forget God? And this is what we transition it to. We ain't going to be on this too long because it's going to take a minute. Go to Genesis chapter 3. But we're just going to lay it down a little bit and get it started. And connect it back to this idea of our purpose being for the pleasure, the purposes of God. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1. Let's just go on and read it. Said, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the free of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made them aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. We're going to pause right there. This is the beginning of our demise. Most people call it the fall. So what we see here is right after the creation of man, how much time passed, we don't get no time markers. Adam and his wife in the garden doing the work of God. And it said the serpent came and began to speak. Now, the amazing thing I want you to point in is for us to understand our position and how it is that we get to the place where corruption and even ruin our lives now today is we got to get this and we're going to zone in on this. But the key point is, is that the opening of the temptation was the deception presented. The opening of the temptation was the deception that was presented. Eve had walked by that tree we don't know how many times. She knew of it. Her and Adam probably talked about it. But it is not until a conversation with somebody saying something contrary that she notices it. You understanding what I'm saying? So the entrance of the temptation began with the deception. And that's why I said deception is the second most dangerous thing on this planet. More dangerous than guns, more dangerous than cancer, any other thing. Because all those things can only destroy and hurt this body. But deception can lead me to sin which can destroy me eternally. So it's the second most dangerous thing that exists today and it is the thing that put us in the position that we are in today that's why truth is the utmost importance in the deception the way it was presented was one of questioning and doubting first the word of God then the character of God when he came to us he said hath God truly said that was the beginning of the temptation that was the beginning of the deception to begin to put in her mind that God did not say what you thought he said. You understand what I'm saying? So at that moment, Eve was in a position 
to where she had to wrestle within herself. Do she really know what God said? That's the beginning of deception to try to make you doubt what you know to be true. And if we apply this to ourselves, we see the same lie still working now. We have confidence, we have boldness, we have hope all the way until it's time for us to do the thing we got confidence, boldness, and hope in. And then that little voice in our head taught to tell you all the reasons why what you think you believe is not true. Has God truly said? Is what the voice say to us. Because you can be in church and you listening to uh, Apostle Jay and he gets you crunk and excited and he tell you about all his witnessing he tell you about how he be out there dealing with people and he take you through all these scriptures back and forth and forth and back about God giving you authority and that's power and what the other one? My mind just went blank. Authority and power. Power and ability. Authority and ability. He give you power. That's authority and ability. He put it down. So you got the authority to tell the demons what to do. You got the authority to stand for Christ and you got the ability to do what it is God wants you to do. He break it down and you be hitting and you be going through the script. You're like, yeah, that's true. And then you get ready to walk up on somebody or somebody say something to you and you be like, <laughs> and that thought go in your mind, well, you can't say nothing to such and such and such and such because they educate. And you don't know the Bible like that. So you ain't got the right to be talking to them. But God said, that he's giving you power. God said that he put his word in your mouth. God said that if you study and understand his precept, that his word has made you wiser than your teachers. That's deep. That's what the word do. But people tell us, nah, you you, you can't talk to them because you ain't that smart. You ain't get that much education like them people do. And you're learning one as great as them folks. So you can't talk to them. And the question really is, has God truly said? And it goes greater and greater and greater and deeper because you sit up in here and you listen and you get excited because you want to live for God. And I want to be right. And the spirit get disturbing and moving in you. And you want to do right. And you believe you're supposed to live holy. You believe you're supposed to live righteously. You believe certain stuff you need to leave alone and you got to stop it. And then it works all the way until you get home. And the thought get to saying, you can't do that. What is he saying? Has God truly said that he changed you? Has God truly said that he made you brand new? Because you claim you believe that when you read it in the Bible. All things in Christ are brand new creation. That I prayed, I felt the spirit move. I, I know I've been changed all the way until you feel something different. And that feeling that you feel that is something different is the lie of the serpent trying to deceive you and make you think God has not said. So you doubt the transformation that went in you. And you begin to speak to yourself and think of yourself as what you always been. Because you don't believe God changed you. You prayed and you prayed and you get up and say I'm the same. 
You pray and you pray and you get up and say, I never overcome this. God working on me with this. And you make excuses to lower yourself because you cannot reach the conclusion that God has truly said. That's deception. And that's what's put us in this place to begin with. We believe the lie instead of the truth. God's word is real and we got to stand on it. And don't allow yourself to tell you that God ain't saying. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because that's the beginning of deception. Doubting the truth of the word of God. And we live in a world of pluralism. What I mean by that is there's a whole bunch of options out there. And there's a vast move in two directions. To get rid of it. To just completely abolish the whole identity of Christianity and truth and Jesus completely wipe it off the map. Or blend it in and make it a part of everything else. Though my only options right now in this pluralistic society we in. The Bible ain't true, it ain't real, it's hateful, it's meaningless. Or it ain't no different than any other thing in any other book and everything else out there. Deepak Chokra. Only in, in Oprah book list, it's just as important as the Bible. <laughs> That's the point we in. It's just one other good book amongst many. And when we live in a world where compromise has crept in to a church. And what's the compromise? Has God truly said? So you have people who live in a scientific community and they, they tell you all these researchers understand to tell you that the Bible didn't, did not, can't say what it said. Because how a man gonna be a one boat in the middle of a desert and put all the giraffes and all the, 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 the hippopotamus and all that stuff on there? That can't be true. So that book wasn't written by no God. That's what they tell you. And you feel down and you feel defeated because you don't know what to say. And you need to understand that we live in a life that's a spiritual battle. It's deeper than whether or not a hippopotamus can fit on a boat that a man built. It's deeper than whether or not a giraffe can bend down and how long he can be on there. Whether or not a lion in a chia pit <laughs> can it coexist. Whether or not Noah can smell the fumes of all the animals and all the feces and survive for 40 days. It's deeper than that. Because the people who truly doubt this and want to cast doubt on the word of God, they're trying to liberate themselves. And if you catch a quote-unquote atheist in an honest moment, he'll tell you what the real deal is. He don't want nobody to tell him how to live his life. Some of the deepest of the deep, I listen to them. And when you catch them in them, not when they're giving presentations, not when they're standing giving a lecture, when they're in a casual conversation at an interview, and they be honest with you. That I want to have free sex. <laughs> and I want to be able to be with whatever woman I want to whenever I want to. And your Bible tell me I can't do that. And if there is a real God, I got to answer to him for the way that I live. So he cannot be real. So let me find an excuse to doubt that God has said. And what happens is we allow those things to creep into our mind, not realizing that we're in a spiritual battle, a battle that's trying to liberate us from God and liberate us from our responsibility to God. And we think we did an intellectual battle. No, you're not. Them folks trying to be deep ain't deep. All they're trying to do is find an excuse why you can't tell them how to live. 
And when you wrestle and you allow that stuff to bog you down in your mind, what it does is give you an excuse why you don't live the way you want to live. Because they tell you that Bible is old, is outdated, is antiquated, and those a whole bunch of times in the Bible times. Well, I always ask this question, like, what do you mean by the Bible time? Bible covered about like 4,000 years plus. Then people talk about this one Bible time. <laughs> like the people doing the same thing all the way from when Jesus was living all the way back to Abraham. No, that's a whole nother culture. But they don't put it to you like that. Like back in Bible times, see, it was different. See, I show you that it ain't intellectual because they don't make no sense. But the idea is to show you that it's outdated. So when you get those thoughts and those ideas in your mind, truly what you're thinking is, did God really say? So if God was outdated when he was telling Moses about divorce, if God was outdated when Jesus was talking about divorce and remarriage, maybe he was outdated when he was talking about my relations with the opposite sex. Maybe it was outdated when we talked about my understanding of who I am and how I'm supposed to live. And all that creeps in and you begin to compromise and you begin to excuse and justify your lifestyle because you say, did God really say it? You understand what I'm saying? And that's why we have be, to be people of the truth. And be willing to pursue God to every means in every corner where he is and can be found so that we can know the truth. Because that's our only hope. That's our only protection from deception. Go look, look at this scripture. I both say this. What I got to leave. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Well, actually, second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Verse, we'll start at verse 8. It says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion, that they may believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a very heavy scripture. And it talks about the final days or the end times as the church folk call it. The eschatons as the theologian want to be deep. And it's painting this picture and a little bit if you read, I think it's the verse before, it said this spirit of iniquity is already at work. So this thing that he's talking about, this wicked one that's going to be revealed, his spirit is already at work in his world. But how does this spirit work? Say his coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth. So it paints the picture of this one that's going to come and he's going to work miracles and he's going to do some things that make people believe that he is greater than what he is. And he says it's deceiving them that perish. Why? Because they believe not the love of the truth. So it's the rejection of the truth that caused these people to be subject to being deceived. But the main point I want you to work out is this one who's coming, this one we call the Antichrist, this son of perdition, who's supposed to take over the world. His working is after the working of Satan, but his power is deception. That's how he would take over the world. Deceiving with all deceivableness. Then it gets a little bit deeper. In verse 11. It said, for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they may but should believe a lie 
that all might be damned who believe who believe not the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that get a little deep. Now that ain't supposed to be in your Bible. Some folks will say. Say, for this cause God shall send them a strong delusion. So we're painting a picture of God sending a spirit of delusion, messing up people's minds so that they do not recognize what truth is. And it says, because they did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But I want you also to see the contrast in that. Now, there's, there's, there's a group of people who who's going to be deceived. And the spirit of God is going to come on these deceived people, giving a strong delusion. They cannot figure out their way up or down. Because of the spirit of deception that's going to be on them. And the reason it is, it said, because they believe not the truth. And the contrast he had or the parallel with believing not the truth, it said they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So in the mind of Paul, taking pleasure in unrighteousness is the same thing as believing not the truth. So you're denying truth. When you take pleasure in unrighteousness, which manifests the fact that you are deceived and what shows you that you are being set up for a strong delusion. Are you, 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 y'all understanding what I'm saying? But do you see the relation between truth and morality? There is no separation. That if you're living unrighteously, you are a person who do not believe the truth. And if you're a person who do not believe the truth, you are a person that has been deceived. So you cannot separate what you know from how you live. And the reason we think that is that is a part of the delusion. And it has trickled its way all the way down even to our educational system. What do you mean by that? Because that's why we have split grades. You have a conduct grade and you have an educational grade. Because the modern thought of philosophy is that actions, morality, character has nothing to do with education. That you can train a mind without training a man. That's a lie. The training of the mind is the training of the man. And if you try to separate the two, you have delusion, confusion. Because truth affects the way that we live. And if we believe the truth, we will live in accordance with the truth. But if you're living unrighteously, you have, you do not believe the truth. What shows you that you are deceived? What's pointing me closer to the point where we're getting to? This perversion that we have and the corruption of the image of God. Because we all know and we all been connected with people who live a lifestyle that we think the Bible does not support. But these people will manifest to you, they will tell you, they will get up, raise their hands, shout, sing songs, sing praises, and tell you how much they love God, believe in God, giving their life to Christ, but they are not living for him. It's because they have conceived in their mind that how they live have nothing to do with what they know. In that certain aspects of scripture, God didn't speak on that. So if Jesus didn't say it, what I'm going to believe it for? Y'all getting what I'm saying? And we're going to delve more into it. I've been debating whether or not to do it and God won't let me stop. Because there are certain people who categorize themselves as Christians and they put some extra stuff behind it. Or they put some stuff before it. And what I'm here to tell you is that they are living in deception. There is no such thing 
as a fornicating Christian. Can't be both of them. There's no lying Christian. Can't have both of them. There's no thieving Christian. You can't be any of those things. There is no faithful Christian who put down his wife because he found somebody new. That's a lie. And I'm going to keep saying it. I don't care how good your bishop preached. If he's not faithful to his wife, what makes you think he's faithful to God? He can see her. She can walk in on him. He's conscious of her presence. But the person who he ain't seen, the person whose presence he's not conscious of, you think he's going to be more faithful to him? That's a lie. And he's showing you it's a lie because he's not being faithful to his wife. Because if he was faithful to God, he would be faithful to his wife. That's why Joseph can say, hey, I got my master. He gave me everything. I ain't disrespecting him like that. And I'm not going to commit this sin against God. That's integrity. That's uprightness. That's a person who has not been deceived. See, but what these preachers and pastors, if they're in a state where they're saying, has God truly said? And what leads me to the second point where we'll pause on in that temptation in the garden. He questioned whether or not God said, and she wrestled with that for a little bit, and she spoke back. Then he began to question the character or the nature of God. Because he said, God knows that in the day you truly eat, you ain't going to die. You're going to be like God. So basically what he's saying is God is lying. God is trying to hold back from you. And those are the two most fundamental deceptions that we wrestle with. Did God really say it? Will God really do it? Did he say it? Will he do it? How do you see will he do it? There's people on the planet who have faith, who have hope in everything that God say. And he going to do it for everybody but me. It's like the dude came to Jesus and he wanted to be healed. It's like, master, if you will, you can make me whole. So that shows you he believed that God had the power to do it. But the thing that he questioned about was whether or not he would do it for him. Like, if you want to, you, you, you can make me right. So he knew it. He understood it. He didn't doubt the power of God. But what he did doubt was the love of God for his person. And let us not be those people. Know and understand that God cares for you. Like I said, a couple months ago, we heard a whole thing about this. The fact that God cares. That he got you on his mind. That the thoughts he has towards you is more than the sands on the seashore. That he rejoices over you with singing. That he delights to do you good. This is the God that we serve. So if he has a power, if he has means, if he has the ability to do something, he ain't going to hit this one and refuse you. Why? If you believe in just like she believed, if you want it just like he wants, she wants it, he'll do it for you too. Please don't allow the enemy to trick you and think that it works for everybody else. See, Jay can live like that because he Jay. No, Jay can live like that because God is real. Ain't nothing special about him. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> why can't Aaron be what he is and even greater 
He can. All he got to do is pursue the God who made it real and made it possible and know and understand that just like he can do it for one, he will do it for you. So please don't let the enemy get into your mind. Please don't let you get into your mind and doubt whether or not God does it for you. We know he cares. We know he can heal. We know he got power, but don't do it for me. I'm always going to be this way. Did my cross to bear it. That's a lie. God is a loving God. God is a merciful God. And God is a real God. And so please don't allow yourself to be deceived by the deceitfulness of the enemy. God's spoken and we can know it. God cares and he can show it. Do anybody got any questions?